Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 12, on the hustings with would-be politicians. Quintus Tullius Cicero, the not-famous brother of Marcus Tullius Cicero, wrote a pamphlet for his famous brother on how to get elected to public office. Marcus was an able mouthpiece in court and useful to important men, but as a new man himself, without ancient family lineage, he was handicapped against older families and his hopes were becoming elected consul. He had served as quaestor and praetor, but this higher office looked beyond his reach. Fortunately for him, in 64 BC, Rome's other option for consul was the wicked and troublesome and unacceptable Catiline, so Cicero got the consulship. Long story, which is not necessary to cover here. Which doesn't mean that the brother's advice was useless. Quite the contrary. It is, in fact, timeless. Flatter the voters, promise the moon, call in favors, disparage the opposition, and, whenever possible, make sure that you have the matter in the bag before the votes are actually cast. Cicero was in Rome, working at the highest level. What about the outlying districts? For that, we go to Pompeii and Herculaneum, where the political action was beginning to heat up. Some context first. Roman colonies had Ordo de Curiones, about a hundred respectable men of authority. Every five years, members reshuffled the list, totting up the dead, writing the most corrupt guys out, inviting worthy outsiders in, all to keep the numbers more or less steady. It was a lifetime position if you kept your nose clean. Turnover varied, as did ease of entry, at least in Cicero's time. When a friend asked Cicero for help in getting a stepson into the Pompeian Ordo de Coriones, the orator replied, Roma seis habes, Pompeis difficile est. Rome, you want it, you got it. Pompeii, that's, that's difficult. As to elections, these were an annual affair, and we're talking two offices only, really, and two slots for each one. The offices were edile and duum-weary. The two edils kept streets clean, temples and public buildings in order. They had their hands full after the earthquake. The two duum-weary, sort of a local version of consuls, oversaw public money, organized the regional census every five years, and underwrote public games. The job required hard work and high expense for this family glory, and could put you seriously out of pocket. Blacks around town remind people of the politicians responsible, from their own pockets, for the given fountain or public bathhouse, and that's before we even begin to talk about circus games. Candidates had friends drum up support, most obviously now by early forerunners of campaign posters. The walls of Pompeii are awash with red lettering on the public sides of buildings, encouraging those few men who could vote to vote for fill-in-the-blank. 
The decipherment is a challenge, since the notices from previous years were not whitewashed over, but exist in places and layers, giving in names and offices for the entire decade of the 70s. Seasonal work, sign painting, we must assume, and you wonder what the painters, and they give their names, did for the rest of the year. More painting, presumably, rather than oversized calligraphy, which would make the campaign posters also business advertisements. Also a little sucking up here and there. Sabinus the sign painter with pleasure made this. I don't paint just for money, in other words. Endorsements came from guilds and such, political action committees who threw in their two cents depending on what was promised behind closed doors. Greengrocers, jewelers, barbers, and the like, rather than individuals. One Gaius Julius Polybius seems to have been a baker, promises good bread, which suggests that bad bread had been an issue that year. He got the support of the Pistores, bakers. That raises the question, if the bakers were in bad odor, would Gaius Julius Polybius want their support? or worry that people might see him as beholden to the big bread interests? Could have been worse. Endorsements also came from individuals. One such sign reads, Asalina's girls, not leaving out Zimmerina, ask that C. Lolius Fuscus become duumbuir for roadways and the maintenance of public and religious buildings. Is that an endorsement he really wanted? Difficult to say. Asalina ran a thermopolium, essentially a hot food and drink joint on the Via della Abundanza, a busy thoroughfare. There is evidence, ambiguous it should be noted, that the girls in question, or some girls, or the rooms upstairs, were available for quick assignations. Who were the girls in question? Four other endorsements arise that sort of raise eyebrows. Igle, Zimmerina, Maria, and Kukula. Kukula asks for Gaius Julius Polybius as duo-weir. Kukula is Latin for hood or cowl. Many speculate that she was a sex worker, not least because at some point someone plastered over her name on her endorsement. Question becomes, who? her or him. One can spin out several speculations depending on that choice, but there's really no way of knowing for sure, any more than there's any way for sure of knowing that she was a prostitute. That no one was bothering to slap down the other women's endorsements makes the case for his being embarrassed harder to endorse. He may have thought himself a raffish fellow. Kukulo may have had second thoughts or perhaps never approved this message in the first place. Location, if not everything, well, certainly something. A sign on a nicer house or the house of a known VIP should lend more gravitas to the candidate. And, of course, throwing up such a poster would show loyalties to the candidate, loyalties for which good things in return would be expected once the candidate won. An interesting case is that of Aulus Vettius Capricius Felix, would-be Edel for the year AD 73. Q. Brutius Balbus was a neighbor of Capricius, 
Around the corner from Balbus is a sign asking for Balbus to support Caprasius. We ask you, Balbus, uh, to make Aulus Vitius Caprasius Felix for Edil. It seems to have worked. The fellow would need to have been an Edil if he wanted hopes of being an Duumvir. And on that same wall we read, Balbus is relicting Aulus Caprasius and Pacus Proculus, highest rank of Duovery. No prompting needed this second time around, you'll notice he just went out and wrote it. James Franklin, in his Pompeii, the Electoral Programmata Campaigns in Politics, 8071-79, dates the two signs from 8073 and 8077, respectively. The book notes that for a duumviri, the fix was well in before the sign went up, which makes you wonder why bother at all. Vanity, presumably. Campaigns for Edelship were somewhat more open, and that's where the more entertaining programmatica come from. AD 77 is a case in point. This is the year that Marcus Serenius Vatia threw his hat in the ring, hoping to become an edile. He got plenty of legitimate endorsements, boilerplate affairs with honorable people attesting to his good character. Asalina and the girls have no known opinion. But there are a few eyebrow raisers in the mix as well. Not exactly attack ads, but not exactly full-throated endorsement. Emgrinium ideal altur amat, altur amatur, ego fastidio, qui fastidit amat. Marcus Carinius for Edile. One man admires him, another man is admired. Me, I'm disgusted. To which another hand has added, whoever is disgusted likes him. Well, quite. The problem is, Latin, despite its reputation for precision, can have a fair amount of ambiguity. The verb amare has a variety of meanings, most obviously to love, to like, to find pleasure in, to be pleased with, but also to be grateful to, to be in a patron-client relationship with, to be obliged to. Read into this graffito whatever and however much you like. Presumably the Pompeians did. Bottom line, of course, is that the painter finds the idea of Avadia as edile as beneath contempt. Which makes you wonder how much trouble this anonymous hater went in order to express his feelings. Sign painting was a specialty, not something that the modern tagger amateurs got involved with. Amateurs preferred actually scratching the wall. Perhaps it was a professional painter who was working on his own time. That sign was just for starters. Less ambiguous are what seem like joke endorsements. All the late sleepers ask for M. Carinius Avatia for Edile. How about... All the late-night drinkers ask you to elect Marcus Serenius Avatia Edile. Floris and Fructus wrote this. Anyone else? A much-damaged sign suggests support from all fugitive slaves. And, to cap it off, Vitiam idealum farunculi arrogant. Farunculi. Sneak thieves. And finally... Marcus Serenius Avatia, for a good man for Edile, 
Colepsius asks that you vote for him. Uh, so also the Sakari. There's some question about the transcription of Sakari. It could be a misspelling of Sakarius, luggage handler or porter. Alternatively, more amusingly, Sicari, cutthroat. Either way, if it weren't for all the straight signs in his favor calling for his election, there comes a point where you have to wonder if our man Vadia wasn't a member of an early incarnation of Britain's Lord Such, founding member of the still vibrant monster raving loony party. Nothing at all would prevent him from adding those unusual endorsements. Or perhaps he didn't want the office in the first place. It was expensive. Or was he just not part of the club? His father, Corellius Restitutus, likely a freedman, and as such disqualified from being a member of the Ordo de Coriones, was a credit to his station, good enough to be an Augustalis, priest of Augustus, his tomb voted to him by the Ordo de Coriones, but perhaps not entirely one of us. A suspicious person might think that Vatia was acting a bit of the upstart, that his turn was not yet up, or simply that the fix was in. The whole question of blue bloods and fresh blood of lower class, encouraged by the Flavians, in the Ordo de Coriones has been around for some time, and not going to be solved here. Modern scholars see it less of a problem than scholars of the early 20th century. We may revisit the question in future episodes. Class questions aside, we are, according to Franklin, considering the ballot for 8077. Unlike other years, 8077 was a real contest with another set of would-be ediles. Politics are polite until something is really at stake. Also of interest that year was the race for Duumvir, notably Marcus Epidius Sabinus. He had some strong support behind him. I beg you to elect Marcus Epidius Sabinus Duovir with judicial powers. He is worthy. May you elect one who, in the opinion of the worshipful judge Suetius Clemens, is a protector of the colony and by agreement of the council on account of his merits and his honesty, worthy of public office. The family name appears a few times on the wax tablets of Eucundus mentioned in an earlier episode, chiefly as freedmen who witnessed some of the documents. So, logically, a family of size and wealth with freedmen out there carrying on the family name. Also a family tomb with 160 individuals. Between one thing and another, lack of much epigraphic evidence, we might well believe that this was a family of eminence grease, power that did not need to or want to blow its own horns. Ironically, we know more about Suetius Clemens, the worshipful judge on whose word the citizens were expected to vote the man in. The historian Tacitus mentions Clemens in passing when describing AD 69, the year of four emperors. This was the year of Nero's suicide, when Galba, then Otho, then Vitellius, all had a go at being emperor, with Vespasian winning out in the end. Suetius Clemens had been a primi pilaris, a senior centurion, sworn to support Otho, 
who ordered him to command a force of urban cohorts when the German army of Vitellius began to march south, threatening to overthrow Otho. We can take from this that Clemens was an imposing man, not the sort you wanted to mess around with if you could avoid it. As to his character, Tacitus describes him as one who used his office to gain popularity, being as reckless towards maintaining discipline as he was eager to fight. The fighting in question was in the Maritime Alps near Nice and Vence, and not described in any great detail. All we learn is that the enemy fled to the mountains, but Glemz's men, irritated, took out their frustrations on the Italian city of Ventimiglia, where they indulged in mass looting and burning and murder, this against a region that had done nothing and sworn no alliances. It was simply there. If he had anything else to do in the struggle between Altho and Vitellius, we are not told. Once Altho committed suicide, releasing his men from duty, Clemens could hardly expect mercy from the likes of Vitellius. Having about zero professional prospects with the new emperor, and having been made aware of the new forces gathering around Vespasian in the east, Clemens found a new patron. When the Flavian army passed into Italy from the east, Clemens signed up and, with his skill set, or despite his background, helped the Flavians depose the Vitellians. Vespasian did not forget his allies. He also had a lot of work that had been left unaddressed for far too long. One of these was rectifying the public land markers down in Pompeii. Under Roman law, some good parts of arable land was held in trust for the entirety of the population of the town. Over time, however, families who owned land that bordered the public plots became a little more casual in respecting the legal lines than a lot more casual, finally to the point where private owners were doing a nice business on communal property, like as not vineyards. Which is where Clemens comes in. With the full faith and support of the Emperor Vespasian, he, and presumably his surveyors, blew into town, and with this surveying equipment made straight the boundaries and pushed back against the entrepreneurs who had gotten away with communal robbery for some time. Clemens, as a prime pilaris, would have been a man of considerable bulk and intimidation, which suggests that this, like tax collection, was not a job for those not stout of heart nor strong of body. He would have had to face down influential men who had become accustomed to the benefits of the land and were unlikely to want to give it up readily. And since this sort of thing did not offend a large part of the population, indeed was likely greatly appreciated by many, his word, to say nothing of his backing from Vespasian himself, gave Clemens an authority that was second to none. Also, he was not local, and therefore could be seen as impartial in any of the local squabbles where emotions ran deep, even unto many generations. We know about all this because of stone markers set outside the city gates, on which the rectification of the plots is made official, and Clemens given credit. Some think that when he left, grateful locals gave him some three-year-old wine as a token of respect and gratitude. He was not present for the eruption. 
By then he had gone to Egypt, appearing as a camp commandant for the 3rd Cyrenica and 22nd Legions. We find his name, along with many others, scratched into the two feet and lower legs of the statue of Memnon. The one in question reads, I, Titus Suedius Clemens, prefect of the camps, heard Memnon, 12th November in year two of the Emperor Titus. Memnon refers to the Egyptian statue of King Amenhotep at Luxor, ancient already in those days, dating back to 1350 B.C., damaged by an earthquake in 1200 B.C., after which, by some peculiarity of wind, would, at dawn, emit an unearthly wind tone, or tones, or some sort of natural phenomenon which would divert the rational and amaze the mystics. Various others scratch their names and messages onto the statue's legs, in Greek more often than not. Ancient literature confirms the moaning. It should come as no surprise that Clemens, or anyone else really, if in the area, should come by to see what all the fuss was about. No surprise that he should scratch in, Clemens was here. I mean, if the Emperor Caligula could leave his name, and he did... Well, why not a Roman soldier? The statues are still there, or rather what is left of them. The whistling wind chime effect, alas, disappeared centuries ago, a loss to tourists and characters in Agatha Christie novels. Old gods give way to new, and the old are left to fend for themselves or wander the universe in search of new meaning. But I digress. Clemens finished his service, presumably without incident, not a lot of fighting going on at the time, or perhaps he was dragooned into active service again under Domitian in later years, especially if his temperament was as fiery as Tacitus would have us believe. Back in uniform, back on the march, back at the edge of empire in search of anyone who might look funny at him or try to start something with Rome, he'd be ready. At least he wasn't in Pompeii. Apropos of Pompeii, and as a coda to the story, sadly, the house of Polybius, the man who had gotten the endorsement of Asalina, was one of those in which bodies were found. One a pregnant woman, one her possible husband, one an elderly man who may or may not have been Polybius. The house is far richer than most. The rich sometimes imagine that nothing bad can happen to them, really other than becoming poor, that is. Next time, a few words on Titus, heir apparent to Vespasian. As Roman emperors and personalities go, he is in some ways the most interesting of all, or, rather, the presentation of him by our literary sources raises the most questions, not least of all about our literary sources. And as he will be figuring largely in our story as the year goes by, Best to lay a firm foundation, well, about now. As a reminder, contributions to help underwrite the production of this series are more than welcome. It doesn't write or perform itself, and it doesn't survive on the internet without some cash outlay. If you're in a position to help, the donation button will get you to Patreon or buy me a beer. If you're a little short just now, an upvote or mention would not be unwelcome. 
Until next time, thank you for listening.